Imagine. It's the middle of the night. You're not even 15 years old. You're home alone with your little brother. Waiting for your mom to come home. Waiting and waiting to hear her car pull into the driveway. And you're wondering, what if she doesn't make it? She had a night shift job in Salt Lake, which was about 70 miles south of where we lived, soldering um, electrical components. I, um, I think she was actually working on missiles. I think she was, uh, Sperry Rand was, uh, had a um, defense contract from the, from the federal government. So when mom went back to work, my older brother Kent had been babysitting us, but he had been drafted and was in Vietnam at the time. So uh, after he left and went into the service, it was pretty much just Rod and I, and my younger brother Rod, and I was mostly in charge at that time. So um, yeah, when I got off the bus every day, there was nobody there. We're responsible for making dinner, cleaning up, taking care of ourselves, getting ourselves to bed, and um, usually up again the next morning because mother would come home and she'd be sleeping. So. Um, yeah, that was that was the way it was. Remember, this is uh, the '50s and a Mormon community. Uh, nobody, <laughs> nobody that I knew of was was getting divorced at the time, and it did. It made me different because I was the one that was coming home uh, uh, to a house without a mother in it. So one night I'm sleeping and I'm suddenly awakened. And I sit up in my bed, and I look around the room, and I try and figure out what it was that woke me up. And I'm thinking it was some kind of sound. And for some reason, my attention uh, goes to my bedroom closet, where I can see that my old tap shoe box has fallen from the shelf above uh, the hangers. And I thought that was quite strange, but nonetheless, I went over and I picked the box up, and and put the black patent leather shoes back into it, put the lid back onto it. And then, of course, I went back and got into bed. But I couldn't lay down. I just really just sat there under the covers waiting because I was feeling like I was supposed to be up for some reason. And I knew something was going to happen. I can't explain it except that I felt like I was waiting on something bad. And I would have gone and told Mom if she'd been there, but, of course, she was at work. And so I was in charge, and I was very well aware that whatever was going to occur was going to be in my lap. And then I heard this thud. And then I heard another thud and another thud. I knew they were coming from my left side as I was positioned in my bed looking out my window. And that would have meant that they would have had to have been coming either from our garage or the ward's place on the, uh, on the other side of it. The ward's place was right next door to us. Thud, thud, like that. I remember hearing that sound, you know, as it diffused out over our orchards to the west. Then I heard another one. And then I thought, well... <laughs> I better get up and check the rest of the house out because I'm in charge now. I felt a real deep concern. So I go and I check out the locks on both the front and back doors at first. 
Then I go into the kitchen and I turn on the light above the sink. So I'm standing at our porcelain sink and it has uh, windows all the way around it. I just stood there for a while and just like anchored almost, uh, as if I was supposed to just be in that spot. It did seem at that point that something bad had taken hold of the night. My first fear was for my mother. She had to drive that 70 mile drive, you know, all the way home uh, in the dark. And she was always complaining about how tired out her eyes were after staring eight hours into a magnifying glass. How, you know, how tough it was uh, to keep from falling asleep on that drive home. And I told God, would he please protect her and our black Chevy? Protect me from becoming an orphan. It's more just sort of maybe a dread. My, uh, my breathing alters a little bit. I prayed off the dread of a call from the police. Right then, sirens. Sirens come screaming down Highway 89, and four um, patrol cars screech to a halt in the ward's driveway next door. And, well, all I can think about is Donnie, the one with the wild reputation. But I can't understand why it would take so many cops to arrest one guy. Uh, the policeman gets out, they hide behind the doors of their cars, the sheriff gets out the megaphone. Uh, it was just like in the movies. And he started, he, he, he first called for Mr. Ward to come out of the house. And then he called for Mrs. Ward. And then he called for Donnie. But nobody came out. What I saw was a policeman. I saw him come out of the house and he was headed in our direction. And this really worried me. I, I remember watching him walk over their lawn, crossed our double driveway, and then he selected the cement path that led to our front door. I went and turned on the porch light, I turned on the foyer light, and I opened the door, and there were two people standing there. Uh, it was him and a woman. Now, I assumed she was a plain-clothed uh, policewoman because she wasn't in uniform, but nonetheless, she was with him. I told them my mom wasn't at home, you know, hoping that that'd make him go away. Uh, but he said no, he still wanted to come in, and I let him because he was holding a baby. He came into the foyer, and she followed him in, and then left us. And I had the notion she had just gone into our kitchen. But anyway, I didn't have too much time to process it because the policeman was trying to inform me what had occurred next door. Some people had been shot. One of them was this baby's mother. Uh, she was dead, and so was the baby's father. The kid was about three months old, and I could see blood on her pajamas. Uh, he said they were waiting for the relatives, to, some relatives to come and get her, but they were coming from a ways away. It would take them a while. Uh, they happened to be short on personnel. They needed everybody over at the ward's house. Uh, so they didn't really have anyone to watch the child. He said he'd seen the kitchen light on. He'd seen me standing in front of the kitchen sink, and he wondered if I would take her in. I don't even remember <laughs> saying yes before he ditched her with me 
and gave me her bottle and I noticed it was only half full and wondering what I was going to do if they didn't get there in time. I was wondering if the kid came with diapers. I was thinking I might have to go swipe one off one of my old baby dolls. And that caused me to think about this woman that had gone into the kitchen. I, I had never seen her leave. When I walked into the kitchen, I did see her, but I could see through her. <laughs> and that's when, and that's when I understood uh, the woman wasn't with the cop. She was with the baby. She's very, very shook up. And she is standing in the corner. She was apologizing. That was the first thing. She was apologizing for being there. But she also told me that she was going to be there for a brief time. Uh, this was the baby's mother. My curiosity more or less kicks in at that point, And I don't really feel a sense of fear. So then I told her that I knew she was there and that it was okay. And after that, she seemed to relax a little bit. Uh, she relaxed, actually, a lot, because it wasn't because I gave her permission to be there. It was because we could communicate. And that seemed to be of tremendous relief to her. So after establishing the identity, I got all practical. Um, I realized I wasn't going to be able to hold that baby all night that I was going to have to go make it a bed. She follows in, us into the living room, then she walked right across that living room to the opposite side and stood in front of those plate glass windows. And I remember looking out those windows and seeing those stars shining over those huge uh, rocky mountains. And she would stand there the rest of the night. She was focused on me and the baby and there didn't seem like a lot of time to be fearful because um, I felt that she was there for a reason I don't know I think I can uh, she was communicating her thoughts uh, to me because I felt a lot of emotion and um, I felt her concern about what had just happened and I knew she was troubled because she didn't know who I was or if she could trust me with her child and I wanted to alleviate her concern, so I told her, hey, don't worry. I babysit all my ne nephews and nieces, and I've got 11 of them. And then I told her how sorry I was that she had just died. Uh, maybe it was my own fears that were feeding into things. I mean, I had just prayed off not becoming an orphan myself, and there I am holding one. Um, but I suddenly felt the pain of a mother and a child divided. I was um, sad. <laughs> I was very, very sad. Um, then I felt her disappointment. And then I felt her hope. She really hoped that her child would be able to hear the story and not let it ruin the rest of her life. Our relationship was um, quite practical, it seems. But most of the time, yeah, I held her really close um, next to my chest. I was quite protective of her. Just rocked her, uh, kept her safe. It was really important for me 
um, that she felt safe because she kind of wasn't. The baby was really quite a good baby. Um, I only remember her waking up once and crying, and then she slept the rest of the time. So, you know, I've often wondered if her mother's presence, if the, if the child felt her mother's presence. And I think that was the whole point of her being there. She was sticking around until she was sure that, that the baby was in the right hands. Well, I remember when Mom got home and pulled into the driveway. I was at the, you know, I was at the door waiting to tell her what had happened. Um, and uh, it was probably about an hour or 45 minutes after she arrived home that they, the relatives came and picked her up. Um, they were very kind to me and, and, like I say, very appreciative. There wasn't a big transaction. We, we gave them the baby, and it seemed like they were off. Um, as soon as the relatives had departed and the baby was, was gone, so was she. So I'm sure that she went with the child. And by then we had learned what had happened. Uh, this young woman had been having an affair with Donnie, and uh, she had just asked her husband uh, for a divorce so that she and Donnie could carry, you know, forth their, for their lives together. And uh, her husband was a Brigham City policeman, and after his shift he had gotten drunk and then drove down to our little town to settle the score. He uh, shot Donnie, and then he shot uh, the mother, and she was holding the baby. Uh, they were standing in the kitchen, and she was holding the baby at the time, and the baby fell with her to the floor, which of course explained the blood on the pajamas. And then the shooter turned the gun on himself. So the thuds that echoed over our peaceful orchards had been bullets. This sort of thing just didn't happen in our part of town. And it had given me some celebrity to hap have it happen right next door. So the next day, uh, when I returned to school, I was the center of attention because everybody wanted to hear this story. You know, it had made the uh, Box Elder Journal by then. So, And I told them about the policeman. I told them about the gunshots and the baby. But I left out the ghost. Why didn't you want to tell them? At 12, you crave ordinary. <laughs> I didn't want to be seen as unusual or different. And the other part of that is, this was uh, a private, a very powerful experience that I was hesitant to share. It was mine. Thank you to Janet Larkin, for sharing your story at The Snap. Now, if you want to hear more of Janet's experiences, she's written them down in a book called Surrounded by Ghosts. Find out more at our website, snapjudgment.org. The original score was created by Renzo Gorio. The story was produced by Anna Sussman.